Hi, I'm Deborah Hamilton. Welcome to my podcast, Why Do Pets Matter? Ten years ago, with my iPhone and a script, I recorded the first episode of the Ultimate Pet Resolution Summit, which chatted with experts about conflicts over animals. Our conversations were intimate, honest, and illustrated how disagreements over animals occur and how those disagreements can reshape people's lives and relationships. In November 2019, I started Why Do Pets Matter, a new podcast that continued these informative discussions. I'm so excited to have you here with me, continuing my exploration into a more meaningful conversation about why pets matter to all of us. My guests and I will share ideas, stories, and experiences straight from the heart, unscripted and holistic. From the bravest moments to the most brokenhearted, we will explore how to resolve disagreements over animals differently. One thing I know for sure is I want to have more meaningful conversations that will help all of us unlock that deeply felt human-animal bond that drives the emotions of conflict. Hi, it's Deborah Hamilton, and today we have one of the best podcasts I think we've done this year with Elizabeth Cronin. She's the director of the New York State Office of Victim Services. And we talk about why pets matter to people going through issues involving domestic violence. She gives us great information about the urban resource industry and Willow, which are working with domestic violence providers of shelter. So you can take your pets with you. We also talk about her love of dogs and how losing her first dog took her a year and a half to get a second dog. Elizabeth is really chock full of information and just talking about a subject that is so near and dear to all of us when it comes to pets and possible domestic violence. So let's take a listen. Hi, everyone. It's Deborah Hamilton, and you're listening to Why Do Pets Matter, the podcast that really cares about why pets matter to you. Today, we are talking to my good friend of maybe 30 years, Elizabeth Cronin. She's the director of the New York State Office of Victim Services. She and I were assistant district attorneys together in Westchester County, and she went on to become rich and famous, and I went on to be here on the podcast with all of you. Uh, I am so thrilled to have her here because she has so much information to bring to us that we might not consider um, when it comes to pets and domestic violence. But before we get into any of that, I'm going to ask you, Elizabeth, we're so glad you're here. Thank you. It's great to be here. I appreciate the invite. And I just want to emphasize that as a government employee, I'm neither rich nor famous. <laughs> <laughs> and and all of these opinions are yours and no <laughs> one else's. Yes, we as lawyers are always able to do that. It's a funny thing. Yes, we're not rich and famous, but but we're happy. We but are. we're happy in what we're doing. So yeah. uh but we always ask our guests one question, the first question, and then we go on from there. So Elizabeth, why do pets matter to you? Pets matter to me because I love them and they are a member of our families and we make decisions based on what is good for our pets. So for example, I have ruined my wooden stairs um, in my home with rubber treads because my dog is getting older and he's struggling to go down the stairs. So I have put the most hideous looking black rubber treads on my staircase so that he can more comfortably go up and down. And I stuck 
a light fixture along the staircase so he had more light. So you've essentially ruined your house for your dog. Yeah, the look of my house. And I did it willingly. Well, you know, we all do that. I know I have built uh, most of my house around my dogs, most of all my homes around my dogs, uh, because my first house, of course, the basement was done first, which is where the dog's, you know, salon was. And uh, so my I husband, remember that house was built around my dogs. Uh, but for you, you've had two really lovely dogs. Both of them were rescues. I remember the first one. I think I met the second one, too, the last time we were together. Yep. So we have rescued... Um... I got one from the North Shore Animal League in Long Island, and he lived to the ripe old age of 14. Um, and when we lost him, I was so devastated. It took me about a year and a half to want to go through that again. And then once we made the decision, it was pretty fast. And we adopted again um, a rescue that was brought up from, I think, South Carolina, um, which is kind of ironic because he's like, very furry. He's kind of a husky. So I don't know. I don't know how he ended up down there, but um, very different dogs, very different personalities um, and very much fixtures in our home. You know, it's so funny when you said that, first of all, it is amazing that long haired um, husky dogs are found in the South. I find them here in North Carolina as well. And I worry about them in the humidity of July, yes. and August. Uh, so it's good that he was transplanted uh, to the north. And I know that you guys travel even further north in the winter. So he's probably in his next yeah. life in the cold weather. Uh, but the other piece that you mentioned, which I'd love for you to chat a little bit more about, because it is often, you know, pets matter to us. And when we lose them, the thought of getting another one is so heart-wrenching because we've just had our heart broken in a way that we never thought would be possible and do we want to experience that again and tell me a little bit if you don't mind you know what your thought processes were a year and a half is a really good amount of time to take that breath and and let that move you to a next point it's it really is important yeah uh, you know it was um i was surprised at the depth of my sadness jasper was the dog that had died and um, it was interesting because as he was getting older, um, he was sort of banging into walls and things. And we thought, oh, this is it. He must have some kind of a, you know, brain disability. So we took him to the vet. And she said, we learned about this thing in veterinary school that has stuck with me. And the, the professor called it old rolling dog syndrome. And I'm like, what is that? And she said, we're older dogs will sort of do this weird thing where they're walking into walls and then they stop. And so I asked her, well, if this was your dog, would you just take him home? And she said, yes. And so we did, and he, it did stop. And we had him for many more months. And so I was really grateful with her for being so thoughtful about it. But there did come a time, he was a very large dog. And so, um, you know, there did come a time when it was really clear to us that he was just struggling. And, yeah. um, and his quality of life had stopped, even though you, you never wanted to let him go. He correct. was enough already. So we made the decision and we spent the whole day before we took him to his, he couldn't really walk well. And we took him to his favorite lake and we just opened the back of the car and let him 
see his lake and we fed him every bad food. He had seizures and he couldn't eat certain foods. So we just gave him all those foods and um, really tried to make his last day wonderful. And um, but great, great memories, right? Great memories for us, certainly. But um, I, I really was, and I grew up with dogs. So I, I was shocked at the level of my sadness at letting this dog go. And I just couldn't bring myself to go through that again for a while. And then one day I went online and started looking at, and that's the problem with the internet because it's so easy to find your new animal. And we had had a cat too, that we, my son wanted a cat and we had adopted a cat when he was in middle, in uh, grammar school. The cat hated my son. And so, uh, you know, my son would try to hold him and hug him and this cat was not having any of it. So then of course he grows up and goes away and we have the cat and the cat lived to almost 19. So wow. yeah, so I, I'm not a huge cat person. It's my, my son is, and he now has two cats of his own. So, you know, we were used to to that and I felt really good about rescuing and we had had a purebred golden retriever for a time but we had gotten him from a puppy mill and we didn't know then what that meant you know we went we were at a we went by a dog's a pet store and they had them and it was like oh my god they're so cute we have to have this but I didn't know what was happening to these animals as part of this whole system and you know that was uncomfortable when we learned more about that right and so you just you went and um i know the internet is deadly and and what's even worse is okay so you see them on the internet you have to actually get out of your house and go there physically but if you go to a pet store forget it you're not walking out without an animal um, correct an animal lover it's just not going to happen it's well, sort of like going to see puppies just to look yeah it kind of happens the same way because once i contacted the rescue i was done and he's in, in Scarsdale, you know, which was 20 minutes away from where we live. So the next thing I know, Kevin and I are in the car and we go to her parents' house and the dog runs out and runs right up to me. And yep. so that was Rudy and he is still in my life. Yep. Uh, and the next thing I know, we're driving to the pet store to buy food and a bed and, and you know. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. They, it's an automatic adhesion to your heart you just walk in and if you're a pet person you understand how that as you said how that dog rules your life <laughs> how being able to take care of it and make sure it's safe and well fed and has a bed and a roof over its head and everything that's important and and so for you these animals have been so important like for me you know we you know i've had oodles of dogs and, yeah, and you're, all, you're on a whole different plane but i only have one now so i'm like that you know it's a little shocking <laughs> i mean i'm on withdrawal here but uh, it it's interesting because when you started working for the Office of Victim Services, one of the pieces I think that you probably knew about but probably became even more aware of is the fact that, you know, people who love animals have difficult relationships. And when those difficult relationships explode, where does the animal go? And and I'm always talking on my MAP program that you have to have a plan for your pet because you don't know. And for you, it's so 
probably heart-wrenching because people either have to leave their pet behind because there isn't an accommodation. It's getting much better. And I'd love to hear more about what's happening in that venue. But, you know, I think you said you started there nine years ago. It was probably less prolific, the ability to take your pet with you if you were in a dangerous situation. Tell us a little bit if you feel comfortable about that. I mean, you know, as you mentioned, we were both prosecutors. I was a special victims prosecutor. So I was the deputy bureau chief of the Domestic Violence Bureau. And so we used to see this in DV and in child abuse cases, in elder abuse cases too, where people, because of their affinity for their animal and their desire to protect them, um, that they will either do something they don't want to do because the animal is being threatened or they won't do something like take themselves to safety because they don't have anywhere to take the pet. And I mean, there's all kinds of stories out there where someone will live in their car um, rather than go to a shelter because they don't want to leave the animal. And, you know, you even think about like natural disasters, right? When you have a terrible hurricane or something, where people should be fleeing for their own safety, but they don't want to leave because they want to stay with their animals and they don't have a place to go with their animals. Right. You know? And so it, it puts them in a terrible position. And there's all kinds of, of cases of children who the abuser uses the animal safety as a way of coercing that child into behavior that the child doesn't want. And harming pets is a very typical behavior for abusers to use as a coercive tactic. And according to, for example, the Animal Legal Defense Fund, abusers of animals are five times more likely to then go on and abuse humans. And, And you see that sometimes with serial killers where if they go back into the person's history that you'll find that that person um, was found to be abusing animals as a child or something and so then they go on to use their own mistreatment as a way as a coercive tactic and and, and you know it's often sometimes the children will abuse animals because they're lower on the totem pole too right and it's they're acting out and it's it's you know, one of the things that we used to talk about all the time when I was prosecuting child abuse cases was, what is this child doing? You know, there were certain behaviors that the child would exhibit if they were bedwetting or they were sucking their thumb again, or they were hurting animals, that it would be a huge red flag to, you know, teachers or doctors or whatever to pay attention to the signs that something was wrong. And so many people, and it's predominantly women who try to enter domestic violence shelter programs, report that like 71% of them report that there was either a threat, an injury, or an, an animal in the home that was killed as a way of practicing coercion. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about our pets, which are domestic pets, you know, cats and dogs or iguanas or, you know, whatever you ferrets you can have in the home. But then you have a whole another category of victims who live in rural areas who have large animals that it's very difficult then, you know, to find a, a place to, to, 
house. They're so fragile too, especially say horses, you right. know, we can do something to them that would end their life. And they, it just in a minute, it's interesting. You bring the, the large domesticated animals up because that's the thing that almost nobody thinks about, especially as you said, you know, your office, I think is up in New York state. So closer to people who live in rural areas with barns and horses and all animals, goats, and you don't think about domestic violence and large animals, uh, but people stay because there is nowhere to bring your horse. Or if you're trying to find a place to bring your horse, it's either prohibitively expensive or it's, you know, not in a in a situation that you really want to put your horse in so it just it's it's really about being able to know there's there are things out there to help you there are rescues out there that really focus on helping domestic violence victims either find a place to go with their pets or find a place where their pets can go so they can leave so it can be like a two-part drop-off i think you know more about that than i do well it's true i mean there's a lot of different models out there and you know i think one of the challenges, I guess, for programs that will take in animals in a shelter situation is how you do it so that you're not causing someone else, you know, if someone's afraid of animals or they're allergic to animals or the animals don't get along. I mean, there's a lot of dogs that have been mistreated that become vicious and to be able to plan for that and it's expensive for these shelters because they have to have insurance and uh, yeah, additional insurance for dog bites. I mean, who, who knew right. or cat scratches, which are almost as terrible as dog bites. Yes. <laughs> Anybody has been scratched by their cat. cat. They know cat scratches yeah. and dog bites. Not good. Yeah. yeah. And it, it's, it's so interesting because I often talk to people about, you know, being able to train their pet to be in a crate, not because I am a terrible ogre, but because if something like this happens, the domestic animal can stay in a shelter in a crate and not be totally stressed out because it was where they ate or it was where they got all their treats or it was, you know, not that you should, you know, crate train your, your pet so that you're planning to leave because of domestic violence, but but, you know, in the event that something occurs, yeah, right, there's an you know, emergency that, yeah, disasters, I, you have to go to a shelter, you know, being able to go to a shelter with a pet is imperative because you want to take your pet. Like you said, you know, there are floods, there are fires, you're evacuating. Um, most of the shelters will take a dog in a crate. I mean, my dog, for example, has so many quirks as a result of being, you know, a rescue dog that. I can't bring him to a shelter. Like when we go away, I have to find somebody. Yeah, and even come if in. someone comes to stay at my house, he won't go out with them. He won't walk with, you know, it's it's complicated. And yeah. we're in a really functional household. Like we can figure it out. But when you add all the, tra the trauma and the stress of yep. a domestic violence situation, um, you know, it just exacerbates the situation um, for you and the animal i mean for you the and the animal and you're asking this person to make like considered thoughtful choices when they're at the worst moment of their life and you know as we know you were talking about horses but animals get so stressed if they're not in their environment routine you know my dog is so routine he's so dependent on everything happening the same way all the time. And so when you see that stress 
you want to alleviate it. And so if alleviating it means compromising your own safety, then you might make that choice, you know, so, you know, and many people do, do. right. Right. And the people who 40% of victims don't go because they feel that their, their pet will be hurt or be so stressed that it really won't be in their best interest. And the people who are in good faith, either fostering the dogs um, or, you know, our shelter that works with a shelter, a dog shelter that works with the domestic violence shelter to put, you know, crates aside or kennels aside, you know, they're doing the best they can, but the dogs are put into this untenable situation. So you're right. You know, I might do it once, but then I'll get this dog back who is shivering and shaking and scared. And so I'll never do it again. And I'll, I'll just stay where I am. And, and it's so hard. So what, what we, what the perfect answer would be, who knows, however, being able to provide the animal and the person with I guess a room of their own, which is almost impossible. Right. Um, you know, you're fleeing a situation and there's all sorts of vagaries that happen, you know, and you've got your, maybe your children with you. So that must be even more difficult if you're fleeing with your children and your pet. Well, it's something I noticed during the pandemic when the shelters were emptied out and you could not find a rescue, right? And so, you know, on the face of it, you say, isn't this awesome? All these dogs are getting adopted out, but they're getting adopted out by people who really, I don't think, want one. They or want don't know what company. it means. They're just they, home and bored, right? They were bored. They were lonely. They wanted something, you know, and even if you, if you put the best spin on it, you know, they wanted to help, but when their life went back to normal, they didn't want it. So all those dogs go back in the shelter. But I, I knew people who, like one family I knew adopted a dog. They knew nothing about having a dog. They'd never had a dog. It was, the dog was one of the last dogs in the shelter. So it's already stressed. It comes to this family. They don't know what they're doing. The shelter didn't give them any information about how to deal with this dog. And the dog attacked the dad and tore his hand apart. He had to have surgery and stuff. And the dog was not a bad dog. It was so stressed out by them not knowing what they're doing, by the situation. And so now you have a family that will never adopt a dog again, ever. Yeah. And, you know, it just really indicated to me of how important it is to, kn to know what you're getting into, but also that, you know, you're minimizing the stress on them at a very stressful time. You know, how do we do that? So the dog doesn't act out that way and end up having to be put down or, you know, because it acts out and a lot, it of acts people, out. a lot of people sometimes will do that in a stressful situation. If they see no way out, they'll put the animal down and it might be a perfectly healthy, happy animal, but what's the risk? Let me see. If I leave my horse in this stable, you know, I won't be able to get back to feed it or somebody may break its leg or you yeah. know, the partner is. So I'm just going to put him down. And you then know? you feel guilty and shamed. And are shamed by other people. Why could you, you know, these these people, in quotations, who are going to take care of the pet for you aren't necessarily there, aren't necessarily equipped, and may or may not, as you perfectly put, create that sense of security for the animal in this 
unsecure situation that it's in. So I often think, you know, when people do give the dog back because they are terrible pet owners um, or, you know, walk in and put a dog down, well, you know, some vets will then have them sign it over and call a rescue and help the dog. And maybe that's a good way too. But if the dog or the, the cat or the horse or the bird or whatever is not adaptable is, is, you know, sort of like your new dog, Rudy, you know, he's not going to necessarily adapt. So what would be better? It would probably be better if, if, you know, you were on, because they pick up on our energy. Oh, it's, yes. not, it's not so much that, you know, I'm an advocate of, you know, just put them down and, but if they pick up on your energy and they're in a different situation and you can't really pay attention as much as you'd like to pay attention because you know, you're stressed too. It might be the best of all worlds unless you can find someone or several someones who the dog knows or the cat knows or the horse knows that you can put them in a situation. And sometimes it takes years to build that relationship and who has years in a domestic violence situation to build relationship. Most of the time you're not allowed out of the house. So it's not like you could build a relationship with the neighbor and they could take the dog. Yeah, usually not so much. I don't know if you feel the same. Yes. And also, you know, I, I think what compounds the problem for domestic violence victims who go into shelter is oftentimes they then have to go into transitional housing. So yeah. it's not like I'm going to a shelter and then I'm going to go home. It's I'm going into a shelter. I may never go home. So and, then if I have to go into transitional housing, well, what if they don't take animals right. or they don't take animals that size or, right. you know, whatever, or they don't take that kind of animal. And so then, you know, you've been planning, you have your, your pet with you in the shelter, and then you're going to move on because you have to, you can't stay in the shelter forever by law or, you know, practically. Um, and then what happens? So it, it's a very, very complicated issue. And, you know, I think a lot of programs around the country have been looking at this. So, you know, in 2018, Congress passed the PAWS Act. Right. There were grants that were given out to, I think, five- to create space, programs. right. To create and, space. and working is, collaborative situations, right. Yep. So one of them is URI, um, which is the Urban Resource Institute in New York City which is a fantastic program. And they created their PALS program, which is people and animals living safely. In fact, we profiled them at a conference we had a few years ago to talk about the innovation, you know, um, and especially in a city like New York where space is really complicated. There's and not always pet friendly. And not, not always pet friendly. So there's another one in, in Rochester called Willow that has a program like that. But for a lot of the programs, it's more that they will not house the animals with the people, but that they will safely work with a animal rescue organization right. to take the animal during the time that the person is, is not capable of, of taking care of them. So it's a good step, but it's it has its so, imperfections. Oh, short of, of what I think, you know, ideally. People need. Yeah, they need their pet with them while they're going through this transition because it's such an emotional thing. And you and I both know if we weren't going home to our dogs tonight, 
it would be a sad day because when we go on vacation, I don't know about you, but when I go on vacation, you know, I'm going, oh God, I don't have to feed the dog tonight. I sort of miss that, even though we shouldn't miss it, but we well, do. I used to kid to the dog I had growing up. I said like his fur was always wet from my teen tears. Like, you know, I would tell him all of my stories and all my heartbreak and I would cry in his fur and he would sleep with me at night because I would tell him about my, all my my trials and tribulations and you know when you think when somebody is going through a traumatic event and then you know that the pet is the thing that sort of bridges grounding world right and would make them feel more comfortable you know and you know how little kids are your kids with the 400 dogs that you had you know their beds were very full yeah and so it would be like you know wait, where's my dog? Like I need my dog with me. And so it's not only the victim of domestic violence, which may be the parent, it's also the children who may not be the victims of the domestic violence, but are victims are consequences. of consequences. Mm -hmm. Right. For me, the thing that, that, that I'm hoping for is that this trend continues, that more URIs and willows appear so that people can transition. It's, as you said, it's not perfect. It's imperfect because the pets aren't necessarily with the people, which would help them be grounded while they're going through this situation. However, it's better than staying, in my opinion. The other thing we have to work on are the people who are housing these animals, not shaming and blaming. Right if the person leaves it behind because their cup is full. Well, and I mean, look, when when you're a parent, your first responsibility is to your children, right? So if if you have to make a choice, you know, running from the burning building, you're going to take your kid with you. I mean, it makes me heart sick to think that you'd have to leave. Yeah, both of us, because we're such animal lovers. Right. How but, you know, people emergency. have to make those choices all the time kind of of who to save and it's it's devastating for them you know I, I, one thing is we provide funding to pals at uri and you know this is a kind of model that i hope other states are adopting using their federal funding like we do to either begin these programs or or expand them and we're actually thinking about doing um, a program next year on victims in rural areas because you know new york is so huge you know northern new york and the finger lakes and, and there's so many places in the state that are really rural and really struggle with transportation and programs and support. And this might be a perfect topic of conversation for an analysis of how we help victims in rural areas with the farm animals, the, the larger pets that sort of don't fit into the box of what we think of when we're talking about you know, our pets and shelters. You know, it's so interesting you said that because in my mind, I'm now thinking about all the human-animal bond studies that are being done to prove what we all know, right? That animals, you know, lower our blood pressure, make us feel better, you know, ground us, whatever. They now have studies, um, you know, University of Denver is one of the big ones and University of Tennessee also has vet social workers who help people with animals um, in a veterinarian process. But for me, it would be great if we took the time, as you said, 
to recognize the need because upstate New York is an absolute place where large animal assistance is needed and possibly the incident of domestic violence might be the same as in the city where stresses are different, but results. And, you know, if people like during the pandemic, reporting went down, shelter um, attendance went down, like orders of protection went down because people weren't coming out. Like, yeah, domestic violence was happening. Child abuse was happening. Elder abuse was happening. Nobody uh, saw it. But no one saw it outside of the home. And so for people in rural areas that might, for a variety of reasons, you know, when, when you live in a very insular community, it's hard to come out and report abuse because everybody knows everybody. And I remember attending a conference on uh, Native Americans and victimization. And that was one of the things that they talked about was in on reservations and in these tight-knit communities, they know everybody knows everybody. And so, you know, you may know that something's bad is happening to somebody, but you also know the abuser, like you grew up with them. And it's it's a very complex dynamic of how do we address that? And there might be, you know, lots of cultural barriers and other things, you know, religious barriers that we have to think of where they're less likely to report, but they have all this, the same exactly. characteristics and dynamics and problems. And so in those communities, like not only how do we deal with your animal situation, but how do we even deal with getting you? How do we get you to come out from behind the wall, so to speak? I mean, we've Um, looked at Amish communities, for example, where- um, How do you report to someone who will keep your confidence and help you move on if that's what you need to do? And Uh, breaking away from a community that is the only community of known. You know, if you look at at Orthodox Judaism or Amish or um, you know, Native American traditions right. where they're very insular, and so that is their community. Like they don't want to leave their community. They just don't want to be in a domestic violence right, but they want to be safe. So, like, how do you accomplish both of those things? I know. It, it's such an, uh, an important question and such important work you're doing, Elizabeth. I can't believe it's already 30 minutes. I can't believe it. Um, love to have you back. Love, love to, to talk back. a little bit about how the new facility dogs are working as well, because those are a double-edged sword uh, because they may bring empathy from a jury. However, they really create the ability for someone to talk more fully. Um, so love to have you back to chat about that. I would we have- love to talk about that because that's a big movement. In fact, we recently were asked about that for um, mass casualty, mass violence Yep. locations. Um, but again, not everybody loves animals. And no, so and you have to be respectful. And how so do you introduce that in a way that doesn't take people away? But I, I was just at a mass violence conference in Texas and they had seven, seven dogs. And what was interesting to me is that five of the dogs were shelter animals yep. who had been adopted and trained so you know they had a golden retriever and they had a lab so that's the thing you normally see right right doesn't love a golden retriever but the other dogs were a variety of whatever like we did our dog's dna and he was so mixed they couldn't even identify all of them but so these dogs were like that too 
And I thought this wasn't even something that I had thought about that you would use shelter dogs to do this kind of work. So, and they're doing that in prison now. They're yeah. bringing those dogs to be yeah. either um, facility therapy dogs, because there's a difference between a facility dog and a therapy dog, yeah. because a facility dog belongs to the facility um, and has a handler, and it may go home with the handler, but it is the facility's dog. And then a therapy dog is my pet who I train and get certified and can go into different nursing homes and things like right. that, sometimes get approved to go to disaster sites. If yep. they are, you know, get extra training. Absolutely. So we'll make I would it love to talk that. more about that. I, I am so grateful you're here. What you're doing is a godsend and being able to talk to you about the pets because people just really don't understand the trauma that happens when you're faced with decisions in a domestic violence situation that includes the pet. It, it really is difficult. So yeah, we have so much more. It compounds the trauma. Oh, it does. Because you know what? You know, okay, so your kids come first, but your kids are going to say, yeah, but you gave my dog away. And they don't mean to shame and blame right. you, but you know, they're kids. Yeah, you know? You're supposed to do everything right. Yeah, you're supposed to be able yeah. to dance on the head of that pin. Elizabeth Cronin, I'm so glad you are here. Elizabeth, again, is the director of the New York State Office of Victim Services. She's my really dear friend for many years, and she will be back because- Very many years. You know, yeah, very many years. We're, <laughs> but we're still only 25, so exactly. I don't understand how that happened. In um, dog years. <laughs> in dog years. <laughs> That's it. You're so smart. You're so smart. <laughs> So until next time, everyone, it's Deborah Hamilton, and I will have in the show notes all the links to the places that Elizabeth spoke about so that if you want to make a donation or you want to reach out and help, you'll be able to do that. You can learn more. Um, until next time, give all your pets a hug for me. Deborah Hamilton, Hamilton Law Mediation and Hamilton ADR, North Carolina. The Why Do Pets Matter podcast drops every Thursday and can be found on whichever platform you find your podcast. Subscribe now, invite your friends, and I cannot wait to have you join me in these conversations.